Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Joining us today is Morten Skyba Knudsen, Associate Professor at the University of Copenhagen. His research group is trying to understand the cellular and organismal consequences of DNA damage with the aim of developing interventions for aging. He is also one of the chairs and chief organizers of the highly successful Aging Research and Drug Discovery Conference, which was held in August. Speaking of conferences, before we talk with Morton, I want to bring an upcoming event to your attention. Translating Aging and BioAge encourage our listeners in the Bay Area to attend the Longevity Summit, held December 6th and 7th at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. The Longevity Summit is gathering the entire longevity ecosystem, pharma and biotech companies, investors, researchers, and government organizations to tackle the development of aging interventions, an endeavor that represents the largest value creation journey in human history. To register, go to longevitysummit.io and use code BIOAGE for a 20% discount. All right, with that out of the way, Morton, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. So first off, an introduction to our audience members who might not be familiar with the work in your lab. Can you tell us a bit about the work that's ongoing in your research group? Yeah, sure. So uh, my group focuses on understanding the molecular base of aging with a particular aim of developing interventions. So we have historically focused on DNA damage and the consequence of DNA damage. But we are branching out a little bit beyond that. But the whole uh, point is to develop interventions for humans to see if we can influence aging in humans. What do we know today about the contribution of DNA repair pathways to aging? So I think it's uh, well established that DNA damage accumulates with age, and it's very likely a contributing factor to many things we see with age. I think there are two um, sort of diverging consequences of DNA damage. One of them is is mutations and mutations probably causal in the development of cancers, which are, of course, age-related. And then there's the other direction, which is the DNA damage response, which probably leads to, for example, senescence or cell death, which is probably causative in degenerative diseases such as neurodegeneration. So I think there's quite good establishment that DNA damage is important. Some of the stuff that we've been focusing on is, is also diseases where you have defects in DNA repair. So these are diseases where you inherit faulty genes from your parents. And many of these patients, unfortunately, age very rapidly. And so many of them die when they are teenagers. So it's you know terrible diseases, but it gives us a, a molecular handle on the aging process. Can you give us a couple of examples of specific diseases like that? Yes. Yeah, so, so there's a, a relatively large number of these diseases. The, the most famous one is probably Hodgson-Gilfitch progeria. The main issue that the patients die of eventually is cardiovascular diseases, so they get strokes. And another disease is, is a disease called Cochrane syndrome. This is a disease where you have progressive neurodegeneration, um, and this is a disease that I have focused on a lot. And so all all of these diseases share some similarities with aging, but there's actually not a single disease that perfectly phenocopies aging. And maybe that's a, a reflection of, of the complexity of aging, that, that aging is very likely 
very multifactorial. So you can't only pinpoint it to a single enzyme, a single protein. I want to dive into the details of the work a little bit, but before that, I want to kind of set the stage on the motivation. So earlier in our conversation and on your lab website and in some talks that you've given, you consistently emphasize the practical application of this research to aging biology and that you're really focused on working to find interventions for age-associated diseases. I think most of our listeners are already familiar with this idea, but if you could just tell us in your own words why you think it's so important to intervene in the aging process. So I'm an MD as a background, and I think if we're interested in, in being able to treat diseases and treat chronic diseases, then we really need to understand the root cause of these diseases. And most of the chronic non-communicable diseases are age-associated, and aging is the largest risk factor of these diseases. So something happens during aging that makes us susceptible to disease. So my parents, my dad passed away a few years ago. My, my mom has late stage Alzheimer's and I would have given anything to have maybe 10 more good years with them. Right. So, so having them being able to watch their grandchildren grow up, I think is very valuable. I completely agree with you. This is a theme that comes up again and again among guests on this show and people I meet in the longevity community. And it's also true of me. My mother also has late stage Alzheimer's and it is an absolutely terrible disease. And I, I echo your sentiments. I would love for her to have had 10 more years to see her grandchildren grow up and to see her sons thrive and prosper and, and she'll never be able to do that. And I think that, you know, that is ultimately, you know, we're scientists and we spend a lot of time in the lab and we spend a lot of time talking about the details of molecules and, uh, you know, pharmacology and, and, and how to actually design drugs. But at the end of the day, it's about human beings and making sure that, that human beings have the healthiest and longest lives that they can. Now that we've set the stage and uh, define the high-level motivation for what you're doing in your lab, I want to talk about the specifics of the ongoing work. So help me paint a picture. Maybe if you could tell us about a model system or just like a set of experiments that are you're fond of right, right at the moment. I know there's more than one thing going on in your lab. And just paint us a picture of the question that you're asking, what kind of experiments you're doing, and I'm allowing you to speculate here how that might lead to an intervention in the aging process? Tell us a story. <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, I feel like there's so much going on that's really exciting. So we have a, a story that is on bioarchive, for example, where we have contributed to, I think, a deeper understanding of, of how ketones work in the brain. And I think the the conclusion of that story is that a ketogenic diet actually impacts how your DNA is folded, which is kind of interesting that your diet can do that. And that in turn influences the DNA damage response. And so a ketogenic diet can impact the DNA damage response by reducing the folding of the DNA, allowing transcription to more easily occur. Uh, so I think that's an interesting story. Sort of historically, or going back to my old work as a postdoc, one of the discoveries we made there was that the DNA damage response eats up a molecule called NAD. And we can then use exogenous sources of NAD to increase NAD, but the loss of NAD also leads to changes in, in our metabolism and ketones can, can impact some of that. But as I mentioned, you can also eat stuff that increase NAD levels. And I think exciting development in my lab in the last two years is actually that we have gone into clinical trials. And so this, I think has been really exciting. This has been like a 20 year dream for me. This is actually one of the reasons I went into medical school was to be able to do trials on aging. 
And so we have, we have used one of these NAD precursors and this is unpublished. So very secret. <laughs> don't tell anybody. You realize you're on a live microphone right now, don't you? No. <laughs> is that really true? No. <laughs> no. So, um, I think I can disclose this because we, uh, the study has been, um, completed. It's not on any, um, preprint servers yet, but the point is that we were looking for diseases where we conceivably had more DNA damage or conditions. And so we chose COPD. So chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is caused by cigarette smoke and cigarette smoking induces uh, various types of DNA damage, which is likely contributing to the phenotype. We also knew that COPD has a strong inflammatory component and the previous studies with NAD precursors, the strongest effect uh, that they had seen has actually in humans, at least has been on, on a reduction of inflammation in various contexts. And so we, we decided to treat patients with COPD with, with NR or placebo. Could you just quickly define NR for us? Yeah. So NR is this, uh, natural product that can be converted into NAD plus. Nicotinamide riboside. Is that right? Nicotinamide riboside. Exactly. Thanks very much. So we gave nicotinamide riboside to patients with COPD, which actually led to a reduction in lung inflammation and potentially a reduction in senescent cells in the lung. Wow. I know that the, the clinical trial system isn't identical from country to country. Could you compare this to an American phase one, phase two, phase three trial around, around what stage were you? Yeah. So this is a phase two trial. Wow. Great. Would be corresponding to a phase two trial because it's in patients and it's a placebo, double-blinded placebo controlled RCT. That's really exciting. And are you planning on, it sounds like you're planning on writing that up and making those results public. And then are you going to move on to a phase three type study? Yeah. So this will require a lot more funding. So <laughs> this is where, you know, I'm not a biotech, so I don't have uh, that type of funding currently, but, but obviously this could be converted into a larger study at uh, some point. I was happy to hear that you were able to run a clinical trial as an academic. And I, I just had a question about what the funding support for that was like. Did you apply for a grant the way we might apply for a grant to do research? Or was there a special kind of grant support in Denmark for that sort of clinical work? I mean, this was uh, supported through uh, a grant that was that came from actually out of the COVID mechanisms because COVID is a lung disease. So there was a surge in grants for pulmonary diseases. So it's through a grant option, but there are actually, you can do investigate initiated trials also as an academic. I mean, that's possible, I think, also in the States, but it's reasonably common in Denmark that you can do that as an academic. Mm -hmm. Now, moving on to the phase three type study, you said that it would be a lot more expensive. One of the issues that comes up again and again when we talk about clinical trials with natural products is that the natural product can't be owned by anybody. So from one perspective, there's not a good financial incentive to put a lot of money into a trial if at the end of the day, if you prove that the drug works, basically anyone in the world can sell it. How do you overcome that issue when you're seeking funding for a larger scale trial using a product like NR? Yeah, I mean, so there are two ways you can go about that. So one way is that you could create, you know, variants of the compound that you're interested in, and then that could be patentable. The other way, which is the way that I think Chromadex is trying to protect NR and Elysium are fighting them, 
is through uh, patenting the the way that you produce it because this is something that you can do if you produce it in a in a synthetic way then you can patent that and thereby you can protect and i think this is how i guess chromadex and elysium are trying to maintain their business model okay fantastic i want to go back to something that you talked about a bit earlier when you talked about ketogenic diets and their relationship with dna metabolism and, and therefore possibly with aging just quickly for our readers who might not know what's a ketogenic diet yeah, so a ketogenic diet is a diet that's very rich in, in fat and has very full carbohydrate. And that drives the conversion of fat into acetyl-CoA, which is a metabolite that you have in, in many tissues, but it drives it in the liver and the liver then converts it into ketones, which is a group of molecules that are released to the circulation and can be taken up by your peripheral tissues, particularly your brain. So your brain cannot metabolize fats very well. So it needs an additional food source when sugar is getting very low and ketones are then a possible food source. And what's the general relationship again between a ketogenic diet or a state of ketosis and aging? There's research from the book showing that a ketogenic diet or a cyclical ketogenic diet, so a ketogenic diet where you are intermittently on a ketogenic diet seems to be able to extend the lifespan of mice at least. And I think there is a long history on, on a ketogenic diet and, and the brain because it, it was originally used to treat epilepsy, childhood epilepsy. So uh, I had a conversation with Mark Matson. He's one of the most cited neuroscientists in the world. Uh, I used to be at the National Institute on Aging where he was at his office right next to mine. And he always mentioned that the ketogenic diet or ketosis had been used even in Roman times. When someone had an epileptic seizure, people thought they were possessed by demons. And then they put them in a cell and allowed the demons to burn themselves out. But in reality, you know, they just left them in the cell until they went into ketosis. It's been known for a very long time to have likely benefits effects on the brain in particular. The reason I wanted to chat with you about ketosis a little bit is, so one way to enter this state of ketosis is to alter your diet. But recently, there have been a couple of commercial efforts to sell supplements that the contention is that they drive the body into a state of ketosis, regardless of what the macronutrient intake is. Um, are you familiar with any of these ideas? Yeah. I mean, this has uh, been going on for a very long time, actually. I think it was spearheaded, particularly by a guy called Richard Veach at the NIH, who initially tried to develop uh, ketone esters. So these are two ketone molecules that are linked together. And I think more recently than there are other efforts to make ketones that you can eat and then that sustains the ketone levels for longer. I think that we still don't exactly know how good they are in terms of aging, but I think this is a really interesting uh, research topic because it's very difficult to, it has been very difficult to separate the, for example, uh, reduction in and blood glucose effect from the increase in ketone effect. All right, Morton, I want you to help me here. I'm going to say back to you what I think you just told me to make sure that I understand it. In a ketogenic diet paradigm, one is consuming much lower levels of carbohydrates, and that does two things. One is it massively decreases the level of glucose in the blood, and it increases the level of ketones in the circulating blood. You're saying that in the case of these supplement intervention paradigms where you're adding ketone esters to the diet, 
you can increase the level of ketones without really modifying the level of sugars in the blood. And thereby, we can get a sense of which factor, lowered blood glucose or increased ketones, are actually mediating the positive effects. Am I getting that right? That's exactly right. And I think this is actually a really important question. So I want to take a step back now from the specifics and talk a little bit more generally about your field. It sounds like there's a lot of different directions that the biology of DNA repair and DNA metabolism can feed into aging interventions. From your perspective, what's the limiting factor in translating knowledge about DNA repair into effective interventions? Do we need more basic research? That is to say, do we not yet know enough about DNA repair and metabolism? Or is it that we really just need more translational effort, taking the knowledge that we know and figuring out ways to put that into the clinic? We have knowledge to try some interventions, but the interventions that we're trying right now are targeting the downstream consequences of the DNA damage. For example, this uh, increase in NAD levels is like targeting the downstream effect. Targeting the actual DNA damage and impacting DNA repair has been extremely difficult. And there's been several attempts of doing this, which has had relatively limited success. And that's probably because DNA repair is extremely well regulated. So there are several hundred enzymes involved in maintaining our genome. So you need some sort of concerted action to be able to impact DNA repair. So at some level, it's easier to to go in and, and target the downstream effects than the upstream machinery. Yes. Also, because you have to think about this, you know, there's work from Trip Campisi at the Buck showing that three DNA damage foci, so three lesions within your giant DNA molecule is enough to drive cellular senescence. So these are extremely rare events in the global context of of the DNA. And so being able to pinpoint these three events is, is very difficult. So therefore, it might be easier to, to go downstream and then target the downstream uh, consequences. So this is more of a humorous aside than, than the serious scientific point. But my first serious lab job when I was an undergraduate was in a, a DNA repair lab in the laboratory of a, a man named Phil Hanawalt, who's still working at Stanford. Yeah, I, I met him. Yeah, I know him. I was really excited to work on DNA repair because like you, I believed it would have something to do, major ramifications for the aging process, which I was already interested in. And I would tell my friends that I was working on DNA repair and a couple of them said, wow, that sounds really hard. And I would say, well, I I agreed with them and I would start talking about it. And they're like, no, 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 it just sounds really hard because the DNA is really small. It turns out they thought that I personally was like the way that a watchmaker might repair a watch. Like right. somehow, yeah. somehow manually repairing DNA. And I, I agree that does sound very hard. I mean, they are, as you say, pretty rare events. It emphasizes the, the challenges of science communications, right? Because you, you never know where somebody is going to hang a familiar piece of meaning onto a complex idea that you're trying to communicate. And it's a perfectly reasonable misinterpretation. And it, it was actually a pretty early. It was an early inspiration for me to, to try to be as clear as possible about how we communicate scientific concepts to people. But okay, backing away from that. So we, we've talked about the relationship now between sort of basic knowledge about DNA repair and translational effort. And there's a bigger theme that I want to talk with you about maybe for the, for the rest of the time, which is the relationship between academia and fundamental research and efforts in industry to work towards drugs that can positively impact the aging process and thus treat diseases of aging. So you and I both know, our audience knows, it's an exciting time. There's been a lot of 
productive exchange between researchers and entrepreneurs. And along those lines, I'm interested in talking about the Aging Research and Drug Discovery, ARDD conference. You're one of the chairs and one of the chief organizers, and you all held your ninth event at the end of August, right? Just a couple months ago. Right. Yeah. So tell us, for those of us who didn't follow closely along on the internet, tell us a little bit about the conference and specifically its mission. This is the ninth time that we had it. We used to have it in, in Basel. It was actually started as a small side meeting in Basel Life. And so in Basel, Switzerland, you have two headquarters from some of the major biotech biopharmas in the world, Novartis and Roche. And so it was a perfect place to, to have a conference to focus on drug discovery and aging. Yeah. So, so the, the mission of the conference is to bring together academics and industry with the idea of, of uh, nurturing partnerships and, and perhaps also aligning ideas between industry and academia. Obviously also to figure out what's going on on both sides. This is sort of the core, right? But then there is additional stuff. So because we have been quite successful in getting companies in, then you also get VCs. So there's a lot of investors that go to the conference. And more recently, we have spun out with, with a um, longevity medicine workshop and an emerging tech workshop. So, so the longevity medicine workshop, I think it's the most exciting, which is basically a completely new field within medicine, which is using some of our knowledge from, from basic medicine, along with our emerging clinical trials to design interventions for humans. And I think this is uh, probably the most exciting part, I would say, of the aging field right now is, is the greatly expanding field of clinical trials actually targeting aging. Longevity medicine, is that exemplified by the work of someone like, say, Dr. Andrea Meyer? Yeah, so Andrea Meyer and... Uh, Evelyn Bischoff are some of the people spearheading this, but there are others, of course, that are, that have been doing it for a long time. So one of the most premier aging researchers right now is Luigi Ferrucci from National Institute on Aging, who is, who's been spearheading our understanding of, of aging uh, in humans. But I think what is needed is, is, is really this sort of interventional approach where I think Andrea Meyer is going to be a, a major player in the coming years. And hopefully my group can also contribute a little bit with our small trials that we're doing now. Thanks for mentioning those other names. The reason why I tapped uh, Dr. Meyer is she was actually the guest on our last episode of Translating Aging. And I just wanted to say to listeners who missed that episode, if you're interested in hearing more about the directions in longevity medicine that are ongoing right now, please give Dr. Meyer's episode a listen. It's episode 31 comes right before this one in the podcast list. So it feels like ARDD has grown really dramatically in the past few years. Do you have a sense of like how many participants you had in, in the 2022 meeting? Yeah, so we were around 450 on-site and then maybe two and a half thousand online. Wow. So it's, it's large, very large. I think one of the things that, that made it so large is that we, we have been running it also through COVID. So when COVID hit, we actually didn't cancel, but we, we had all the speakers in line and ready to go to the conference. And then we changed it from, from an on-site conference to an online conference and then made attendance free, which meant that we suddenly had like 2000 people attending online and that really spread the word of the conference. So I think that's one of the explanations for why it's grown so much. But I, I also think that we've been running it for so long now that we have a, a routine in, in what works and 
a format that works and we have a good name now so we can get really the best speakers in the field to come, which has taken a while, of course, to, to build up. But we're reaping that a little bit now. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why it's, it's quite successful. That was consistent with something that I had assumed, which was that the virtual events during the pandemic played a role. And I also just want to mention to our listeners, one of the things ARDD has been fantastic about is putting the content from the conference up on the web, and in particular on YouTube. So I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to check out their web presence and their YouTube presence. I feel like there are literally dozens of great talks from ARDD dating back a few years. And the ones from this year, I think, just went up recently. And if you want to see what has happened at these conferences and, and watch it grow over the course of the, the last few years, you can do that yourself in your own time. So yeah, I feel like everyone was stuck at home in 2020 and 2021, and there was this very low barrier to participating because you weren't charging anybody anything. And then lo and behold, you'd built the most important conference of its kind in the world and everyone was used to attending it. So when you went back to in-person, it was like this unmissable event and you had a packed house. I've seen the pictures of the conference rooms. It was full. They were swinging off the rafters. And that beautiful space, by the way, was that University of Copenhagen? Yeah, that's the old ceremonial hall at the University of Copenhagen, yeah. Oh my God, it's such a pretty room. But so, okay, so there's the, there's the COVID thing. There's the fact that you guys have gotten good at running the conference. But there's a third thing, right? Which is that we're at a pretty special time in longevity science. You couldn't have gotten a meeting like this together 10 years ago, really. You know, not at the same level because the field simply wasn't mature and there wasn't the biotech interest. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I mean, the, the field has definitely grown. And obviously, there's a, a lot more biotech now. But there were other conferences I attended. I think one of my favorite conferences is the Cold Spring Harbor Conference on Aging. Primarily an academic conference. Yes, primarily an academic conference. But I remember 2012, I was there and Cynthia Kenyon announced Calico, the formation of Calico. You know, everybody was so excited about that. She got swamped with CVs at that conference and uh, everybody wanted to join. So, but it's true. I mean, I think Calico was a start, and obviously that has probably not reached the, the hopeful potential that, that we were all hoping for. But now there's a, a very large amount of, of companies that are following. And uh, I think we really need this industry part to, to drive intervention. As I mentioned, I can drive a small clinical trial, but to actually get products in the hands of people, and drive change for regular people. We need companies, we need industry. That's a pretty important lesson and a takeaway from something like ARDD. Were there any other general lessons that emerged from the event? What do you know about drug discovery for aging as a field that you maybe didn't know before this last meeting? Was there something that you learned and took away that you were surprised by? One of the great talks that I would recommend people tuning into is not even an, an aging, not even a, a complete aging talk, but it's a talk by Jens Schulhutz. He's the He's actually a Danish professor that discovered the uh, GLP-1, which is a hormone that's uh, now being used by biotech all around the world and has created revenues of many billions of dollars for, for example, Novo Nordisk. But he actually discovered that. And so he showed data on how GLP-1 affects uh, stroke and Alzheimer's development and things like that. And the effect is really quite dramatic. I think this this also tells us a little bit about our field that even though we think that our field is huge and growing compared to many other fields, it is still a an emerging field, I think. And I, I think there's a huge potential for 
for growth and, and so much that we don't really know about aging and in particular about interventions in human aging. As we get toward the end of our time together, I like, I like to end these conversations with some kind of very broad, loose guy questions and just inviting you to speculate or speak very generally and basically say anything that you want. So outside of your own laboratory, what do you think is the most exciting thing going on in the aging field right now, either in academia or in a biotech or really anywhere? I think reprogramming is really exciting. I think this is a, an area where there could be very high potential. Obviously, biomarkers is, is very important, but I think one of the things that people don't realize about biomarkers is that biomarkers are only useful if they're linked to morbidity, so linked to disease or linked to death. So a biomarker in itself will not, will not really move the needle for biopharma. So this is a, maybe a little bit controversial. Not in this conversation. At BioAge, we very much agree that you need to link biomarkers to health outcomes. That's great. Very happy to hear that. So I think this is actually a really important message because there's a lot of people that are now designing trials solely looking at biomarkers. And this is, this is easy, of course. This is much easier than doing a morbidity or disease trial. But if we want people to listen, if we want physicians to listen, then we really need to show that we are actually improving health. This is a critical point that I think we are maybe not emphasizing enough as a field. I completely agree with you, and I, I hope the field moves in the direction of understanding that we absolutely need to connect the measurements we're making with real morbidity and health outcomes in patients. Otherwise, you know, you can do any number of correlative studies, but what we don't want to do is end up in a situation where we're doing clinical trials and only looking at molecular changes without having established that an intervention in a given molecular change corresponds to a change in a health outcome. Right. And um, we're beating that drum. And I think that it sounds like you are too. And I hope that that's the, the view that wins out because I can see us following following kind of a dark path. And I, I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, but I think the Alzheimer's field in a way fell into this trap, which is that the amyloid hypothesis became supreme and everyone made conclusions about the, 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 the causative nature of amyloid and spent billions and billions of dollars around it. And, and maybe some of these new drugs that have been improved validate amyloid a bit, but I, I feel like the field was just chasing, chasing this one idea that wasn't necessarily rigorously established to play a causative role in the disease for a very, very long time. And I would hate to see aging go that way. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. I mean, this it's also a, um, maybe a testament to the, to some extent, political nature that science is that some people don't really understand that obviously there are leaders in the field, but sometimes those leaders can lead the wrong direction. So I think we all have to think about what we think is the most important question. I just want to make us also another point when, when you were asking about what I'm most excited about. I think the clinical trials is, is what I'm actually really most excited about. So 20 years ago, actually a little bit more than 20 years ago, the, the interventions testing program came online at the National Institute on Aging, which is a program that tests intervention in mice. And in that first paper they published, they stated that the purpose of the program was to translate interventions from mice into humans. And so it's, I think it's unfortunate that it's taken, you know, more than 20 years to get here, but now we are getting there. So I think this is really exciting. I completely agree. And I think that's a wonderful positive note to end the conversation on. Uh, Morton, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. It was a pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you in Copenhagen next year. Yeah, that would be great. You should come. It's going to be amazing. 
amazing. It's going to be the 10th, the biggest ever. We are planning on it. By the way, just planning on coming pretty heavy. I think a lot of us will be seeing you there next year. So I'm already, it's already on the calendar and I'm looking forward to it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for having me. And uh, I look forward to listening to the podcast, also listening to the other episodes. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. And many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time. 